We are in First Thessalonians. We're going to finish up chapter two this week. Um, I was listening to Tim Keller. He, I don't know if you've heard of the Gospel Coalition. They have a conference annually in Orlando. Um, but somebody tweeted about a talk that he gave there to pastors about how to, essentially how to preach. Uh, and he was, he was aiming at a specific thing in his message, but he had a little question and answer thing at the end. And somebody just said, so how much time should a sermon, how, like how long should a sermon last, ideally? And, uh, and he, he said, well, there's obviously no absolute rule. Like the Bible doesn't say thou shalt get up and preach for X number of minutes. Um, but he said, but I think that for, for most audiences, probably 30 minutes is good. Maybe if you're really good, you could do 35 minutes. And I was like, oh, man. And he was like, he said, I, I, I preach, this is Tim Keller. I don't know if you know who Tim Keller is. Tim Keller is, uh, is a very, I want to say effective pastor. He, he, he's good at what he does. Uh, he's, a, he's a good speaker. He's, he's good at making things, at speaking to the culture particularly. He's well known for addressing things that are in the culture. He's got big hands. Tanner says he's got really big, he's a, he's a tall guy. I've actually seen him in person. He is a very tall guy. Um, he was walking by me. We went down to Orlando once for one of their women's conferences. Uh, but yeah, he was saying, 35 minutes if you're real good. And I was like, well, I'm not real good. But my last two sermons have been an hour, over an hour, and 55 minutes. And, and I, know, I know that it's hard to sit and listen to something that, that, that is that long. I'm going to try to be a little bit more conscious of, of the time that I'm spending up here. So uh, somebody start a clock. And, um, we're, in, we're in Thessalonians. Quality over quantity, right, is what we want to go for. So that's, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Um, we're in First Thessalonians chapter 2. We went 1 through 16 last week. We're going to be doing 17. And then we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 3 this week. Uh, chapter 3 is not that long, so it's not too terrible. And uh, a lot of things I feel like get reiterated. I, I talked about a lot of different concepts during that first sermon in Thessalonians and kind of introed a lot of things, gave a lot of background. Some of the background that we get for the book of Thessalonians is in chapter 3, so we've kind of already covered just the basic idea of what's happening in chapter 3, um, but, but we might try to get to the heart of it a little bit more this week. So I'm just going to go ahead and read, uh, again, chapter 2 starting in verse 17, and then we'll continue from there. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. When we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through our faith, through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord, 
For what thanksgiving can we return to God for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. All right. So we, we've talked about kind of the setting a little bit here. He says that they were torn away. Uh, question time, and you can actually answer this. What is he talking about? We've talk, but if you haven't been here, then maybe it would help to get a little bit of recap. He's talking about they've been torn away. What is he talking about? Not the elders. <clears throat> yes. So they went to Thessalonica, they're, they're traveling uh, church planners, they went to Thessalonica, um, they, they preached in the synagogue, they, they taught the people, and things went well, they had people uh, accept the message, a church starts, but uh, the Jews in particular are not happy about Paul and his companions being in there preaching Christ. So they take them before city officials, and um, they, well, they, they tried to, and then they left in the middle of the night from Thessalonica. That was just beforehand in Philippi, yes. Beforehand, they were put in jail. They might have said, we don't want to do that again, so we're just going to leave town in the middle of the night before this whole thing happens. Uh, so they had to leave without much notice. And who knows whether they even told the church. It doesn't say. But, but they're, they're writing this letter in part because they're worried about the church. They're worried about the impression that they have left there. And so... It does look a little shady for some guy you've never heard of before. He comes into town preaching some new message, wants you to join it, wants you to start a church, and then he just leaves in the middle of the night. Uh, it doesn't, that seems a little shady. So he, he wants to encourage them to let them know a little bit more about his heart for them and the message. So he, he's, he's continuing to kind of give a defense for why they left. And for, and for the whole situation. And we talked about that last week, but he continues on it here. So he's saying, we were torn away from you. We, we did not plan this. It was spontaneous. We had to leave in the middle of the night because the authorities were going to come after us. So we went down to Berea. And we know, if you read in Acts, actually, they were chased down there, and people kept trying to run them out of town there also. So they're being hassled everywhere they go. So they said, we were torn away, but... We were torn away in person, he says in verse 17, not in heart. So they didn't want to leave. That, that was not their intention. It wasn't their plan. Had they the option, they would have stayed there and encouraged that church, done everything that was needed for that church. But the authorities were coming after them. So for the sake of the church, they left so that they, didn't, they weren't seen as like an agitating force in this city. So they leave. But it wasn't because they wanted to. Because their hearts are still with them. They're still back there with them. And he's saying that this whole time we've been gone, we have wanted to come back. In 17, he said, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. We wanted to come to you. And Paul says, I wanted to do this over and over. I have been trying. But, he says, Satan hindered us. That's pretty strong to invoke the name of Satan saying, hey, Satan is, is working against us. And you might, that might have stuck out to you when you read that. You might have said, wow, what does that mean exactly? And we're not, we're not given all the details, so I don't feel comfortable to tell you this is exactly what he meant. Um, it could be a number of things. 
I, I kind of I get a kind of a general impression as to what he means, but uh, some people kind of theorize he could be talking about uh, this thorn in Paul's side. Paul talks about in other books that he he received a messenger from Satan and he's he's being afflicted. Uh, that's talked about elsewhere. So some people say maybe he's making reference to that, and even that we're not sure what that is. So it's still kind of ambiguous. Maybe he's talking about that. Maybe they're talking about the fact that a couple weeks ago we read in Acts. They were staying with a man named Jason, and Jason was essentially dragged out in front of the whole town and questioned, and I think they charged him a fee or something. Like, they penalized him for housing these people in the city. So there was, some people theorize, maybe they're talking about the fact that the authorities are, like, actively trying to keep them out of the city because they know about them, and it's like they got wanted posters or something like that. Who, know, who knows? Um, but maybe, maybe they... They are working against them. We're not really sure. Um, but the idea being that some, some force in the world is working against them. And, and it makes sense, right? They, they're traveling around preaching the gospel. And people are trying to keep that from happening. So, so I think that it, in a kind of a general sense, it makes sense to say that the world is working against them. The world does not want them to be successful. It doesn't want to hear about Christ. It doesn't want to hear about Christ being king over everything. And so they, they are battling this. And we don't have to know the details of that specifically. But I think that we had just talked about spiritual warfare too. I think that this kind of points again to Paul's mindset when he's doing ministry. When something, when there's just like oppression, like the world is pushing back against this message. He doesn't take that as like this one guy and put it all on like, Herod or whatever, uh, he, he points to the deeper problem and says that Satan, who is in the world, is working against Christ. He's working against this message. And he has this kind of view that, that the world is working against him because Satan is in the world. And he's, kind of, he's, he's spoken of as being kind of over the world. He very much influences the world. You're either of Christ or of Satan. Is kind of the idea. So any kind of worldly influence that is coming against them is of Satan. And I think that you kind of see that um, when, when Peter challenges Jesus. And, and Jesus says, I've got to go and I've got to die. And Peter says, no you don't. That is a bad idea. I'm going to paraphrase. Um, Far be it from you that you would do this. He turns around. After just really saying nice things to Peter, he turns around to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. And it's like, whoa, what? I think that that is kind of an example. Like you've got this, this worldly perspective that says, Jesus, you don't need to die. You don't need to go about your own will that's fighting against that, that Christ's will, God's will in the world. I think that that's kind of the idea. Like somebody who's fighting against the will of God uh, is what's going on here. So you've got, you've got Satan hindering them. And it's very interesting what he says next. For... He says, for, at the next sentence, verse 19, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. May, I feel like he's maybe saying it makes sense for the world to be fighting against us. It makes sense for Satan to be fighting against us because you as a church are, are our reason for boasting in front of Christ. Like, we are advancing the cause of Christ in the world through your church because of you. And it makes sense, then, that Satan would be coming after us. He would be afflicting us because you mean something. Like, as a church, you mean something 
in the world for Christ. And I think that it's interesting also that, again, Paul's mindset. There's not, a, there's not a lot of exhortation in this. Paul isn't saying, here, do this in these verses. So we pull out kind of the way that he thinks as a pastor. And I think that that's maybe most helpful when we're looking at these verses. The way that he's thinking now is that this church, this, this ministry is part of his legacy in front of Christ. And he, he has that at the front of his mind. He's even talking to them about that. You are, you are part of our legacy in the world. When I get in front of Christ... I'm going to talk to Christ about you, about what I did in your church, about the fact that we we presented the gospel to you, and then you all believed. And that is at the front of his mind, and I wonder how much when we we go to about our day-to-day lives, how how much are we thinking about that? How much are we thinking, what am I going to say when Jesus comes and I have to give an account for what I did in my life? This is like at the forefront of Paul's mind. He's talking about it. And and I think that we maybe don't think in those terms that often. But I feel like it's it's helpful. And and to to be cognizant of the fact, to be aware of the fact that that you are going to have to stand in front of Christ and give an account of the, the good deeds, bad deeds in your life is something we need to be aware of. Maybe this is something that motivated Paul to push as hard as he did. Yeah, he was called by God, but at the same time, he had to, he had to fight through some really hard circumstances. And this is kind of a window into his mind. Like he's thinking, I care about you. And part of the reason that I care so much about you is because when I get in front of Christ, he's gonna, we're going to talk. And we're going to talk about what happened. We're going to talk about you. And, and I need to be able to say, God did it all. But for my part, I worked as hard as I could to ensure that the gospel took root in your hearts. So is that something that, is that the kind of mindset that we have when we're just doing day-to-day stuff? When God says, what, do you, what, did, what about that job that you spent 10 years working or 20 years working? Or, or like what, this thing that you invested your life in, what was the fruit of that? What was the point of that? What are you going to say? For Paul, he's saying this, this is our cause for boasting. Is the things that you're pursuing, are the things that you, you're pursuing, are they cause for boasting in front of Christ when you have to get up and talk about what's going on with you, what you've invested your life towards? Would you be able to say, yeah, what I'm doing right now, that's cause for boasting? Or is it a cause for shame? I think that it's worth asking that. And again, that's, Paul's not coming out and saying, ask this question of yourselves. He's just talking. But again, you kind of get his mindset when he brings up these things. So it's, it's worth pulling out these ideas. Moving forward, he says, we couldn't bear it any longer. Even though Satan was hindering us, he didn't stop us. So we sent Timothy, our brother, and we remained in Athens. So... This cost them something. I, I mean, if you're, if you're a team of three people going through the kinds of things that they are going through, I'm thinking every man you have is really important. Because, I mean, we just talked about in Philippi. They're getting stripped in the public, beaten, thrown in jail. They, most of the time, they don't, have, they don't know where they're going to stay when they get to a city. They're, I mean, they're, they're essentially homeless. 
they're walking from town to town, and you just think about like the day to day, like. I need to go to the bathroom. Can you preach to this guy? You, can you take care of, like, re, how are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? Where are we going to stay? Where are we going to, like, all the logistics of just trying to do what they're doing is, is pretty intense in and of itself. And, and they've, there's only three of them. So if one of them leaves, that's pretty significant. I felt like it was a big deal when Paul left us, you know, one of four elders at a church that is not really facing any kind of difficult persecution or anything like that but it was felt when he when he took the job in knoxville and when sarah left to go to knoxville that that was not a little thing that was a big deal and i think that a lot of us felt it and you can imagine just these three guys going from town to town doing this hard work because it's also talking about how they're working night and day just to try to provide for their needs as well as preach the gospel so that they don't have to roll up start a church and then say give us money they, they are working really, really hard. So to send off Timothy was serious. And it, it got to the point that they said, we just couldn't bear it anymore. Like we, had, we, we kept moving forward and we kept preaching, but we kept thinking about you guys. And we kept saying, we can't, we can't leave them alone. We can't, we can't allow that to be the last word, us leaving in the middle of the night. We have to go back and we have to make sure that they are okay. And again, you kind of think about this, um, the fact that he compares himself to a father, a, a parent to these people. I think that it's interesting when you have kids because before you have kids, you're kind of like nervous about having kids. And you're like, man, that's just going to wreck my life. And I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do. And then you have a kid. And if you're me, you just kind of freak out over the loss of freedom. Uh, I, I would say that I legitimately freaked out. Uh, about the loss of freedom and then after a while you at this point I've had several kids and and I've lived with them for a while and I feel like I've kind of settled into being a parent and and at this point it's weird because the reverse has kind of happened now if I'm apart from my kids for any significant amount of time I'm like man this is weird I'm not where I need to be right now (laughs) where are my kids how is everything doing how is everything back at the house I need to call them I need to check on them need to make sure things are okay because I know that I'm supposed to be taking care of my kids. And it's kind of weird how that happens. Like me and Carla, if we go on a date now, which is not that often because it's hard to get people to watch three kids. Um, but like if my parents watch three kids, we're, we're away for like maybe, maybe two hours. The third hour rolls around. It's like, man, wonder how they're doing with the kids. What are they doing? Uh, calling them up. Hey, is everything okay? Nobody's killed themselves or each other yet? Do we need to, like, console anybody? Do you need us to bring anything? Um, it's just kind of the way that it goes. And I feel like, you know, he keeps, he's, he's given that kind of comparison for them, saying that I feel like I'm your parent, and I, and I feel responsible for you, and you're part of my legacy. You're part of what I'm, what I'm going to be talking about to Christ, and I can't, I can't be apart from you without thinking about you. I love you. And, and so they're going along, but they couldn't bear it anymore. And they had to send somebody back. They sent Timothy. And there's good news. There's good news in Thessalonica. Um, but don't, don't let me get ahead of myself, though, because it says, uh, the reason they sent Timothy was to establish and exhort them in their faith and that no one would be moved by these afflictions. So they are experiencing afflictions that somehow they know about. 
And maybe part of it is Jason. Maybe that's all they know. Like on the way out of town, they're, they're pulling out people that were associated with us and disciplining them before the city. Maybe that's all they know. Um, but they are being afflicted. And he says, you yourselves know, you know, we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to, pa- just as it has come to pass and just as you know. What is the first thing that you talk about with somebody when they say, I want to become a Christian? Because Paul was not there for very long, but apparently he's already told them quite a bit to the point that he's now referencing and says, you know that this is going to happen. He says, you are going to be afflicted. When you, let's assume you do go tell people about Jesus. And let's assume that occasionally somebody says, tell me more about this. I believe what you say. I, I think that I am called to this. I think that they might not speak that way. Uh, I, I, I want to put my faith in this. With, when somebody says something like that, what, how do you kind of set their expectations as to what that, that lifestyle is going to be like? Do you tell them, well, it's all going to be great now. All your problems are going to go away. It's dissolved. No. They, they said, right at the beginning, not having much time among them, they said, listen, this life, this Christian life, it's not going to solve every problem you think you have. It's not going to make everything all of a sudden easier. It's going to be hard because we preach a king that's not Caesar. Yeah, you can, you can be respectful. You can live under the authority of this world. We're not like rebels that are going to go start our own government or anything like that. But we do preach a different king and we live as though we're under a different king. So when it comes down to it, you have to say, Jesus is king, not Caesar. Not eternally. Not in the way that he's able to trump what Jesus would have to say. So they told them that. And they prepped them for that. And I wonder, I wonder what effect our witness has when we, when we do not talk about those sorts of things. When, when, when the church in America and other places, when we don't address that right up front, don't you think that that kind of removes the expectation that you would suffer later on down the road? Like if somebody's saying... Yeah, I want to be a Christian. And you just keep talking about how everything is going to be great now. And you don't talk about how Christ laid down his life and he calls us to do the same. He said, pick up your own cross and follow me. Drag around your own torture device. Let's go. Like, if you don't say those sorts of things to people and then they continue in their Christian walk, do they they have any concept of the fact that this is actually calling them to lay their life down for the sake of the gospel? Paul said that in a very short amount of time, being with these people. Do we talk about that? Do we live that to the extent that we'd be able to say, yeah, we just rolled out of town from being in prison to beat and all those. I don't think that that ought to happen to us. But, um, but he was able to speak. You know, just the other day, things weren't so great. We were at so-and-so's house getting our wounds cleaned out. And it was great. Um, he talked about that stuff up front because it's a part of the gospel laying down your life so in love alright moving on so they could bear it no longer they sent Timothy to exhort them (laughs) 
verse 6. Good news. Now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through our faith. For now we live. It's a big word. For now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord. Like, you... The fact that Christ is working in you, the fact that he has affected your life and that you are doing well is deep encouragement for us. Deep affirmation that this whole ministry thing, this whole being in prison, getting beat up thing is worth it. It, There's something to this. God is working in this and that, that is serious for us. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. That's the kind of encouragement that, that they get from this report that the church is continuing on now in the gospel. And he says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? They, they just have gratitude, thankfulness. They're happy, joyful, genuinely in a deep kind of soul-stirring way because the church is doing well. Whereas beforehand, they couldn't bear it. They, were, they, they didn't know how the church was doing. They couldn't bear it. And now you've got this contrast. They hear about things are going well. And now it's gone from like this deep kind of unrest, uncertainty, stress. They hear that the church is doing well and now things... For them, in their hearts, they are, they are stirred up, they are joyful, and they are excited. And they hear that not only, not only were they sitting the whole time saying, man, if we need to get back, we need to check on that church, we need to make sure that they're doing okay. The response back from the church was that the church longed to see them. And so in this, in this picture of this kind of spiritual parent just dying to get back to their kids... And the kids dying to see the parent. You get this idea of this kind of love for one another and, and this life together that, that is very much a part of who they are and, and what their day-to-day life looks like. What their hope for eternity looks like is wrapped up in some sense in how they're relating to one another. That is, that is huge. And, and as I just kind of look at that relationship, I think that it's worth comparing where, where we're at as a church. How, how do you relate to your church? How do you think about them? Do you think about them? And when you do, what kind of thoughts do you have about them? The Bible has some pretty serious things to say about the church's love for one another. I feel like I constantly talk about unity of the church, but it's because it's all throughout the New Testament and we spend a great deal of time in the New Testament. Uh, One of the big ones being John 17, just the fact that, that Jesus, before he died, prayed that the church would be one as Jesus and Father God are one. And that's just... I. Still don't comprehend that fully. That is a huge statement. And then you have John. It's, 
That was in the Gospel of John, John 17. John, in particular, is really focused on the church loving one another. And, and I kind of just, I was flipping through this morning, just kind of looking for something in John that kind of exemplified this. And this stood out to me um, in 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to read 11 through 16. This kind of seemed to correspond to a lot of the things that Paul is saying over in Thessalonians. He says, For this is the message that you have heard. Again, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So that's kind of like some of that that's involved in in what Paul's talking about. The Satan is against us. He's hindering us. He's working against us. Do not be surprised that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Like he's saying that part of the evidence in your life that you are saved is that you actually love the church. He says, whoever does not, whoever does not love abides in him that is in there it is i was thinking that does not sound right whoever does not love abides in death sorry everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him so he has he has very serious things and this is kind of a theme you that you see in a lot of john is is that love for the church is an an actual evidence that you love God, that you have been changed in any kind of way. And as I look at the Thessalonian relationship with Paul, one thing that sticks out to me is just this kind of like this mutual love for one another, like a genuine need on their part to know that the other one is okay and to, to grow together. And to be encouraged in a really deep kind of way by one another. They, they both feel that. And you see that when, when, you, when you see what Paul has written. And, and you wonder, like, does that, where does that come from? Where does that kind of love for, for the church come from? Does that mean that I need to have, like, do I need to go, like, plan parties and invite the whole church all the time? Does that mean that I need to spend a lot of time with the church and, and learn how to like these people? Um, do I need to, what, what do I have to do to get that kind of love? You're telling me that this is a measure of how much God has worked in our hearts. Well, how am I supposed to get that kind of love if I don't already have it? Verse 16, go back to 1 John chapter 3. This is verse 16, right after what we just read. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's really nice. Thank you, John, spelling that right out there. <clears throat> so he's saying that this source of love that's in us, this kind of re- deep relationship that ought to be present in the church is is not something that we just it's not it's not something that you get by getting a bunch of people together who really like sports and a bunch of people who really like games and fashion and like all clicking up and and all these different interests where everybody's like okay we we really love these things so so i can like you because we have similar interests 
It's not about trying to get around people that, that make you feel good, make you look good. Um, it's, it's about pouring out Christ's love to other people by being so moved by what Christ did that you're willing to empty yourself for the church. And that's an evidence in our life for what Christ has done in us. That's huge. So I think that it's worth asking, how's your relationship with the church? When you are around them, how do you feel? When you're not around them, how do you feel? Is it, I mean, are you cool with, with going off and doing something else for a few months? And then, and, and not really being affected by that? Or is, this, is it kind of like Paul where he's saying, man, I can't, I'm restless. I'm restless apart from the body of Christ. One more thing, and I just want to get this in here. Uh, after that point, it might feel kind of shoehorned in, but it really stuck out to me. Um, we, we talk about the Great Commission all the time. Um, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Uh, as something that is really imperative. It's really important for the church. Um, and it is. It absolutely is. But I feel like we, we miss out on some of it sometimes. Um, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came, to them, uh, came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I feel like we're getting to the point that like in evangelicalism, there's like, yes, the Great Commission. We all need to be about the Great Commission. But part of that is also this last part where he's saying, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's that last bit where it's not just about making a convert. And for, for, for many of us, that's challenge enough. And that's challenge in and of itself. We're like, man, I haven't even had any converts. Um, so, so that's goal number one. But sometimes with missions efforts, you get people who are really, really interested in going out, planting churches, getting converts. But then they get the converts and move and they go somewhere else. And they'll even justify it and say, this is what Paul did. He went from city to city, town to town. He, he, he set up a church, moved somewhere else. Set up a church, moved somewhere else. But you see in Paul's attitude here that he was desperate to make sure that they were more than just professed believers. They were more than just people who said, yeah, now we believe this. Now we're going to have a church. He had to get back. He was restless. He had to get back and teach them everything that Christ meant, everything that it that it implied for how they were supposed to live. And it wasn't enough just to start a church for him. But he then had to ensure that they were living by the Bible, that they were doing what they needed to do. You can start a church and, and without any kind of biblically based instruction, any kind of guidance, that church can really easily go off the rails. And, and drift into mysticism and all kinds of weirdness by, by bringing themselves to the church and influencing the church by, by their, their culture, their background, and instead of being rooted in this. They need to know this. So his concern was, we started a church, but now what? We need to make sure 
that they are being taught as well as professing the basics of, of who Christ is and what he did. We need to make sure that Satan's not getting in there and twisting it. Like we just read Genesis last week, right? How, how Satan just gets in there and says, God's word plus this one little thing that actually breaks everything. Uh, that's the way that it works. So, so he's saying we want to make sure that that's not happening. And, and he went through great pains to get back and to make sure that they were being taught. So next week, we're going to move into exhortation. Finally, right? Uh, multiple chapters of just kind of set up. And next week he gets into, okay, now that all that has happened, or now that, yeah, kind of the, the recap. This is how we got here. Now he's going to get onto the exhortation next week. But his final thing that he says in this little section Back to verse 11 in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. And for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Those... That's a big statement about loving one another. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another so that he may establish your hearts blameless. It's a big statement. So as you, as you read through these verses and as you see Paul's heart for this church, this church's heart for Paul, and, and this, this deep kind of affection, soul-stirring affection for one another, it's worth asking, is that me? And it's worth praying like Paul is praying here, that God would do that here. I feel like there have been moments where this church has had that. But do we have it today? Let's pray about that. Father God, I pray that you would cause your church to, to be deeply in love with one another, not because... We all look the same or because we all have the same interests. Not because we have some sort of personal thing to gain from loving the other people in this church. But I pray that we would, we would be trained to know what love is based on the fact that Christ loved us unlovable people people that were fighting against him people that in no way deserved his love he loved us and he laid his life down for us and he calls us to do the same and that's a hard thing as a matter of fact it's an impossible thing for us to do it's not something that comes naturally. It's not something that comes by works. It's something that you have to do in us. And so I pray that you would so move in our hearts that we would understand, to whatever extent that we're able, the love of Christ toward us, unlovable, hateful people, and that we would reflect that onto other people, in the church, out of the church, that we would have a 
supernatural love for people. And that as Jesus prayed, that that, that unity, that, that oneness would be such a witness that the rest of the world would take notice. And I pray that when the rest of the world takes notice and when they, they not only find out that we love one another, but that we also preach a different king and they want to silence that, I pray that we would stand firm in Christ and we'd stand firm in our love for one another and that we would be able to face any affliction, even though Satan might come and try to tear us down. He might hinder us. He'd probably be effective at hindering us, but he doesn't stop us because Christ has already won. And I pray that that would be on our minds. And that, and that we'd be thinking right now of the conversation that we're going to have with you on down the line about what we invested in. And I pray that we would be moved by that thought. Be in our songs, be in our hearts, be in our prayers, be in our discussions right now. And in Jesus' name, amen.